resurrection is the central, most important event in all of human history. I mean, it is the event that split history into two parts. I mean, lots of people, lots of good people died and went into the grave, but only one person rose from the dead. And so every time you write a date, every time, 2012 from what? From the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world. He changed the world and split it into A.D. and B.C. And every time you have a birthday or any other date, it's centralized around the arrival of Jesus Christ, the most important person and the most important event in all of history. And so today I want to talk about why. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, we all know that he rose from the dead this morning, but why did he die and why did he rise from the dead? And I want to explain that through a passage of scripture that is in Genesis, the 22nd chapter. And if you'll grab that, if you'll stand with me this morning as we read this word of the Lord together. Genesis, the 22nd chapter. And we're going to see what God has to say to us this morning. And I want you to watch these words closely, read in your Bible. You're going to see some incredible parallels. This was written thousands of years before Jesus arrived. Listen to this. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which the Lord had told him. Then on the third day, does that sound familiar? Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we, look at this, and we will come back to you. You can see why Abraham was such an incredible man of faith. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He took the wood and he laid it on Isaac, his son. The wood was laid upon Isaac. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went up together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father. And he questions his father. My father, you know, my father. He doesn't understand. Where is the fire? And the, I see the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham, prophetically, not even probably realizing that he was speaking to you and to me today, said this. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb, the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went together, and they came to the place of which God had told them. And there Abraham built an altar and placed the wood in order, bound his son, and laid him on the altar, laid him upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, don't lay your hand on the lad. For now I know that you fear God, and since you have not withheld your only son, your only begotten son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead, instead, instead of his son. And Abraham called the place the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And Abraham called that place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And on that mountain, the Lord provided. I want to just tell you this morning that God has provided and a great substitution has taken place. And God has done something for you on your behalf. There has been a substitution made because it should have been you. I want to talk to you this morning about in your place. It should have been me. It should have been you. 
but God has something, done something great and he has provided a lamb for the sacrifice. Are you ready for this this morning? This is going to be really, really interesting and really good. I'm gonna, it's probably going to be the simplest message you've ever heard but hopefully one you'll never forget. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Thank you for the majesty and the glory of this day. But Lord, now speak to our hearts. Let the word of God be made flesh in our own hearts. May we have our ears opened and our eyes opened and may we see and may you fill us with your spirit and and transform our lives today. Do whatever you want and have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The story of the Bible begins at the very beginning with a great dilemma. God had, he was actually put in a great dilemma by Satan. It was a really smart dilemma. He was supposedly trapped. You see, God had loved the people that he made, but God hated the sin. And so Satan came along and he seduced uh, the man and the the woman to uh, turn away and to rebel, and they ate this apple. And the detail is not important whether he ate an apple or whether it was some other kind of fruit. The details aren't important, right? It's not about about the little details. It's about the fact that these people rebelled. I mean, I was talking with a new Christian one time, and he was talking to me about all of the things that he had done and all the sins that he committed, and he felt so bad, and he thought I, I was confession, and he's telling me. And I said, listen, listen, you don't have to go into all the details. The fact that you said you committed adultery, that's enough, and that's all I need to know. No, but I really need you to understand, like, how bad my adultery was. And I said, what, like, there's a good kind? I mean, I don't need to know. It, you, you, that's, it's never about the details. And it's not about whether the fact this was an apple that the people ate and people get caught up about what kind of fruit this was. The issue was is that God told these people not to do something and they did it and they rebelled. And that put God in an incredible dilemma. Satan thought that I have tricked the people and now God has the dilemma. Because you understand, God couldn't just forgive uh, Adam's rebellion because God had said to Adam, if you... If you eat of this tree, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so now God has the dilemma because if he walks up and says, well, you know, never mind what I said, he's broken his word. And if God breaks his word and his word is not true, then there's no hope for salvation at all. And so he either had to kill the person, kill the people to prove that his word was true, or he had to forgive the people, but then his word wasn't true, and and then he would break it. Does this make sense, what I'm telling you this morning? God's dilemma, death, he has to kill the people that he loves, or he has to prove that his word is not true. Because if he had just gone ahead and just forgiven him, Satan would have come and said, well, I thought you said, I thought you said this. And Satan specializes in putting you in contradictions where you feel trapped. And you have, if you do this, you have a consequence. And if you do that, you have a consequence. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you feel stuck and you're not sure what to do and there's consequences in every direction. He thought he had God cornered. But God had this great idea. He had a brilliant idea. He comes with this incredible, brilliant, dazzling, amazing idea and changes the game. The Bible says that God called out, Adam, where are you? He walked in the cool of the day in the garden. Adam, where are you? And Adam hid because he was afraid because he was naked. And he says, Adam, where are you? It's not as if God is interested in his geographical location. I mean, he knows where he is. God doesn't have to go find him. God knows where he is. Adam, where are you? Do you realize, where, do you realize the state into which that you have fallen? It's about a state. Do you realize how far that you have fallen? Where are you? Do you recognize this? 
And Adam had gotten himself into something that he could not get out of. If you don't understand that, you will never understand what God has done for you. As long as you think that you can make it out on your own, that you can work hard and by your own good graces do something to change the situation, make New Year's resolutions, make new promises, vow to change, vow vow to be better, you don't realize that... Adam did the deed. It was done. He had, God said, don't do it. Adam did it. And now God has the dilemma. What am I going to do? Either I follow through on my word and the soul that sins will die, or I break my word and now my word isn't true. God's the one with the dilemma. And so Adam couldn't get himself out of this, and you can't get yourself out of it. And so God did something that was so smart. God found an animal He killed the animal, took the skins of the animal, and covered Adam's nakedness. And this is a brilliant solution. It's so smart we could worship God our whole lives just for this idea. God says, I'm going to introduce an idea called substitution. Everybody say that with me. Substitution. If you don't remember anything else today, you'll go home and say, what did he talk about? Substitution. That's what I'm talking about today. I am saved because of substitution. And you need to understand this critically important concept. Because if you don't understand this, I mean, lots of people believe God. They know about God. They serve God. They believe in the resurrection and all of that. But they don't understand this critical theological concept. And because of that, they never understand what it is that God has actually done for them. God takes this animal and he substitutes it for the man. So that the day that the man sinned, the animal stood in as a substitute and died in Adam's place. So the enemy couldn't say that God didn't keep his word. God just kept his word on the substitute. God said, the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. So look at how much God loved Adam. He loved him too much to kill him. And so he says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill someone else in your name. And so the lamb who had nothing to do with the sin in the first place, a completely innocent lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb that had nothing to do with it, stood in proxy, died for a crime that he didn't commit so that the man could live in a righteousness that he didn't even deserve. This is a picture of Christ. This is the picture of what Christ did. Christ was the innocent lamb who had nothing to do with your sin. And he becomes the lamb of God who dies in your place. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My father. You see, I've been with you all the time. I've never been separated. We've always been together. There's always been uh, been a connection. And now it's gone. Why? Because the day he went to that cross, the scriptures in Isaiah said he was smitten of God. And he became the substitute. And he personally bore the judgment of your sin and mine and every person who ever lived. And this is important because it says that Christ who knew no sin, there was no guile in him. He was perfect in every way. He took the sin of the world upon himself. He's the only one who's innocent. Lots of, listen, there's nobody who's innocent. And people don't seem to understand this. They keep looking for that perfect person that's never going to disappoint them. And then when they don't find that person or the person disappoints, they kill them because they've never found the person that lives up to all of their standards. There's nobody that has lived up to all of the standards. Everybody. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. I'm suspicious of everybody. You know, the little old lady who just came in here this morning, I'm suspicious of you. <laughs> Every one of us. The old man at the nursing home, you know, the nurses better watch out. I mean, God is, I'm suspicious. Every person has done something where you've not kept your own standards, let alone anybody else's, let alone God's. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And I, when, you know, when you get critical and judgmental and start looking at other people, just wait. It's coming your way too. 
All of us have sinned, and so, you know, I'm not putting my hope on anybody else's ability to be perfect. There was only one who was perfect and innocent. Christ the Lamb, who was innocent, takes on a death that he doesn't deserve. And I'm just asking you to think with me for a moment before we go into this story. Think what this means. The Lamb is executed in the place of the convict. So the convict goes free in the place of the Lamb. The convict, the lamb dies in the name of the man so that the man can live in the name of the lamb. There is a substitution. Christ died for me. He died in my place for my sin. Even though I committed it, he paid the price. He died a death that he didn't deserve so that I could live a life that I could never afford. And the life that I now live by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. That's what the scriptures say. So this is an incredible idea of God substituting a lamb for you. Now, all of this to say, this is the backdrop, because the story we just read, in Abraham's mind, he's for sure thinking his son is going to die. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, take your son, your only begotten son, the son that you love, the the one that you waited for for 25 years, the one that you have been so desperate for, the apple of your eye, take your only son and take him to the mountain, to the place that I'll show you, and there offer him as a sacrifice. And he's expecting now... He's in the dilemma, do I obey God or do I kill the son that I love? And here comes the son walking along. Daddy, I see the wood and I see the fire and I see the knife, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham speaks prophetically, not even understanding what he's saying when he says, my son, the Lord himself will provide a lamb for this offering. This one phrase, the Lord will provide, it gives you a name for God that you've heard before, some of you, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, the one who provides, the one who meets my needs. And we use that word in all kinds of ways, like, you know, God's going to provide me a parking spot, or God's going to provide me, you know, my rent money, or a Powerball ticket, the right one. You know, God provide for me, and God do something. He's not talking about that kind of, this is God providing for you when you're in a mess that there's no way that you can get out of. Have you ever been in a situation like that, and you realize if it's not for God, If it had not been for the Lord, there's no way that I could ever get out. Abraham is going up a hill thinking there is nothing I can do. There is no way out. I am in a mess. And he's saying prophetically by faith, you know what, son? We are going to return because God will provide for this sacrifice. I want you to imagine him having to build that altar. I mean, play this in your mind like the movie it should be. Let this clip roll. I mean, picture him laying down stones for a foundation. You, you laid down this stone and you started to build an altar. I'm not sure if we understand what that was like. Imagine you work, and let me illustrate it, you work for a demolition company and, and you demolish cars. You operate the crane. That jaw comes down from the crane, picks up a car, places it on a platform. The next thing that's going to happen is that these steel jaws are going to come up and crush the car. And you do that every day, hundreds of cars. And you've seen that every day you go to work. You know that when that car gets lifted and placed on the platform, the very next thing that's going to happen, those jaws are going to come up and crush the car because you know what happens next. 
Well, Abraham knows what happens next when you built an altar because he's done this hundreds of times. You know that you build a foundation of stone and then you build this big platform of wood and then you tie the sacrifice, you tie it down, you raise a knife, you stab the sacrifice, it, it bleeds, you catch the blood in a plant, you, you light it on, it's a burnt offering. It is a burnt offering and you know that he's thinking this all in his mind about this sacrifice and he knows that God says, take your son, your only son for me. Can you imagine the faith and what's really going on in the heart of this man as he walks up this hill carrying all of this wood, enough wood to burn a human body is a lot of wood and he's carrying this up the hill and he arranges it into this platform. It takes a little time. And then he ties his son down, and his son is not resisting. The son is looking up at him in total confidence, trusting the father. No one is taking his life. No one's taking my life from me. I'm willingly laying down my life, trusting the father. Do you understand that this is a picture of what Christ has done for you? Are you hearing what I'm saying? See what Christ has done. He has earned the praise that you give him. You shouldn't have to be warmed up for it that God has provided for you. When Abraham raises his hand in the air, he's, he's so convinced, the scriptures say, that God is going to intervene that he even raises his hand and God is the one who yells out from heaven through his messenger, stop, stop him, because God is fully convinced that he is going to kill his son. And Abraham is fully convinced, as the Hebrews writer told us, that God was even able to raise his son from the dead. Abraham's the first one to believe in the resurrection. Don't lay your hand on him. Don't do a thing to him because now I know that you fear God, that you respect me, that you, that you, that you honor me more than your own feelings since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I know you respect me because there's not a thing that you won't do if I ask you to do it. See, that means if something, God, if God asks you to do something and you hold it back, you don't respect God's word. If, you, if God asks you to do something and you don't do it, you don't respect the word of the Lord. I see a lot of people say they respect God. A lot of people say they believe in God, they knew God, but just ask God to you know, let God ask you to, to do something, to, to sacrifice something, to give something, to serve him, to, to act on his behalf. A lot of people have on the, the, the fish and the little cross and all of the, 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 the right verbiage and the right language. But just ask God, uh, let God ask you to do something. Will you do what he asks you to do? And Abraham is in mid-swing and God interrupts him and says, look behind you. And there's this ram that's so tired, been trapped up there for days that all this time, all the building of the altar, and those two never even noticed it. It's so silent. The lamb is silent. And they take this lamb and they offer this lamb, this ram, as a sacrifice, as a substitute in the place of Adam. This is substitution. Isaac... Isaac lives because this lamb that didn't do anything, didn't deserve it, died in his place. All of this is teaching us about Calvary. You see, the ram doesn't have anything to do with this. The ram did nothing wrong. The ram's just up there on the hill enjoying the view, eating berries, eating leaves, just grass, just having a good old day, gets himself caught, didn't bite anybody, didn't do anything wrong. And all of a sudden, he's grabbed, put on an altar, stabbed, and burnt. <laughs> and uh, and he, this is done so that the son can go free. All of this is teaching us about Calvary, where Abraham calls this place. The Lord will provide on this place. 
the highest point in this mountain where they're standing, overlooking this whole mountainous, lots of little hills and mountains on this high point that hundreds of years later a city would be formed and people would begin to live. And that city would be called Jerusalem. And outside the city, the highest point, there would be a hill called Calvary. That one day the Son of God would come and his life would be laid down as the sacrifice on the same mountain. On this place, the Lord will provide. Is that not amazing that the Lord will provide? Praise him for standing in for you and standing in for me. When you know, Think about it like you were on death row. You're waiting for the sentence of judgment. You're, you're condemned on your way to hell for all of the stuff that you've committed. And here comes Jesus walking by saying, let her go free. Let him go free. Because I will take your place. And he died so that you can live. And that's why you praise him. And that's what you thank him for. And that's what Christ has done for you, substituting his life for yours. This is the very heart of the good news of the gospel, that God so loved the whole world that he would give his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not die, wouldn't perish. They wouldn't die, not because God is throwing them into hell, because, because they had deserved it. It was their own fault. And God in his great wisdom and mercy and his grace offers Christ, his only son, as the substitute because he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him people might actually be saved. They would be set free. This is the gospel. When you believe on Christ, when you believe in him, when, when you accept his suffering and his death and what he did for you. See, he did it for everybody. He died for the whole world. But when you, when you believe it for you, it becomes personal to you. It becomes he died for me. He sacrificed himself for me. And anyone who believes in him like that is not condemned. I'll illustrate it another way. You know, back in the book of Exodus when it says that God told to Moses, he says, get ready, the death angel is coming. And so I want you to take a lamb and kill it and place blood on the doorpost and on the lintel so that when the death angel comes, he will pass over. This is where Passover originates. You understand why the death angel passed over the houses that had the blood on it? It's because when he saw the blood, the death angel passed over because death had already been in that house. Not every firstborn son in Egypt was killed because some of the houses had presented a substitute and they hid up under the blood of that substitute an innocent lamb and the death angel passed over because he says, I'm not going to strike twice for the same crime. This is the gospel. It's all the way through. Substitution. That's why there is no condemnation for those who believe in what Christ did. Why? Because of substitution. It's not based on good works or what you do or even, or even, what, uh, even what, uh, what, what you've tried to, to do to make up for it. You were hopelessly lost and stuck. And God says, I have provided a substitute. When you believe on him, your sin is atoned for, past, present, and future. The God who lives outside of time, who can apply the sacrifice of Christ to all time, all the way back to Abraham when he declared him righteous, all the way into the future to you and me, all the way into your future, that stuff you haven't even done yet. Christ is able to forgive because his sacrifice was once and for all. When I 
when I pay my mortgage payment every single month, there is a portion of that payment that goes into an escrow account for my taxes. And that keeps building up so that at the time when the tax bill is due in the future, there'll be enough money in the account. There'll be a credit in there that will pay for the tax bill when it came. Well, when Christ died on the cross and when he became our substitute, there was a great deposit into the escrow account of every person who would believe that no matter what I do, he, he delivered me, he has delivered me, and he will deliver me, as the scriptures say, because he's placed an incredible credit of righteousness in my account. And he doesn't give us this credit so that you and I can just have a sin festival and do whatever we want to do. He gives it to us because he is so merciful and he's so rich in his kindness that I can boldly come before God knowing that there is grace, there's a credit there, there is mercy that I can boldly come before him and find grace to help in my time of need. There is no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. And you can say, well, you don't know, Darren, well, all I've done and the mistakes that I've made and the things I've done, I don't know, but God knew. And that's why God decided to become the substitute because no one was righteous. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. So God created this idea of substitution, and there's no condemnation. You know, a little bit ago, we, sh- we, we, we memorialized that substitution by realizing a little piece of bread and a cup in our hands. And we said, this, bot- this bread and this cup substitutes for me. Jesus died for me. When I was a little kid and I went to church, I would be, I grew up in a pastor's home. I grew up going to church every day. I was a missionary kid, so I was in church before I was born. I mean, my mom was there. I was growing up going to church. By the time I was seven years old, I'd been in church like a thousand times, and not once did they ever let me have the communion. I was so discouraged by that. They kept bringing this by, and I'd go, can I have something? They said, no, you're too young. And I would be so upset. You have to think of this from a kid's perspective. A shiny tray coming down <laughs> with little tiny beautiful little glass cups and little snack crackers, and everybody's having them, and you don't get to have any. And I was so disappointed, and then I would kick up this fuss, and I'd be upset. And so my mom started bringing these little bags with crackers in them and a little Tupperware of juice. I didn't want the Tupperware. I don't want that. I want the, I want the little shiny glass, and I want the little, I want to be special like everybody else. Come on. No, Darren, you're not ready. So they, I was deprived. <laughs> so... So, you know, the pastor's kid, you get to church early sometimes. I'm wandering around the church, and I go into the deacon's room, and there it is, all set up, and nobody's there. There's nobody around. And I'm looking, and I lift the little lid, and there it is, the little tiny glasses. And there's, so I, man, I saw my moment, and I went for it. I mean, two-fisted into those little trays of the, I'm just throwing these little crackers back. You know, throwing these in, and I'm shooting the little shot glasses back and forth. I'm just, everyone I can get my hand on, I'm trying to get as much of this while I got the time. I better make it run for it. And the deacons came in, and there was this outrage. And I went running for the door, and they grabbed me, and they hauled me up to my dad. And, you know, my dad, we would say today, the word is probably disciplined. (laughs) Listen, I got beat. It was just, it was a, it was a... And then you go into the church, and then the guy's up there, and he's reading, you know, the deacon's reading the scripture, and he says, you know, that part where it says, you know, if any man would take of the Lord's Supper, let him examine himself. If any man, or a boy, you know, (laughs) examine himself to see if anyone would eat or drink unworthily. Mm -hmm. You know, and they give you that look. You know, you've seen that unworthily, because if you drink unworthily, you're eating and drinking damnation. Oh, damnation upon yourself. Many are sick and sleep 
among you. That means they die, you know. And so by the time they bring that tray past, I'm like, pass, let it pass. I don't want to drink no damnation. I don't want any of that. Pass. I'm feeling so guilty. I was so guilty. Well, you know, it was years later, and, you know, that story changed, and I had a whole bunch of other stuff to be guilty for because I knew better. I was raised knowing all the right things. But just like you, I drifted off. I went my own way. And, um, you know, tried not to think about it too much. Just tried to keep my head down, but I didn't. I just got turned off and did my own thing. And I remember getting to my senior year of high school, and we had a tradition where my dad would have a service every New Year's Eve, and they said, it's time to go to church for the New Year's Eve service. I'm not going. And I kind of put my foot down in defiance, and they said, okay, fine. And I stayed at home. This was the day before cell phones, and I couldn't reach any of my friends, and I ended up just sitting at home alone. And somehow that night, God used that time, and I began to examine myself. And the story of my life started to play before me, and I started to think about all that I had done, and all that I had done wrong. And the the, the accumulation of sin on my account. And this is such great news for some of you who are praying for some prodigal in your family that you think is far from God because when God is ready, when God snaps his fingers, just like that prodigal so many years ago, I came to my senses. I had a moment of clarity and I realized how far I was from God. And I said, oh God, what a sinner I am. I need to be right with you. And not even knowing why, I went and I got in my car and I drove to the church. It was already in motion. I snuck in the back, sat in the very back row, and they came by with that tray. And I took the little cup and the piece of bread just as they were saying this scripture. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And I'm there, oh God, that's me. But upon him, God placed the sin of us all. Substitution. And I understood. He couldn't just forgive me, but he loved me. And he gave his son in my place. They kept sharing what Christ did. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The punishment that, punishment that was placed upon him brought us peace. They, they whipped him, they beat him, they pulled out his beard, crown of thorns upon his head, carried the wood of the cross up a hill called Calvary, stretched out his arms, laid him upon the wood, nails in his hands and feet, lifted him up towards heaven, and there he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took on the sin of the whole world, mine and yours. And he died. And his last words were this, it is finished. It is finished. It's paid for. It's paid in full. It's done. I have accomplished, he said. And they threw him in a tomb, rolled a stone in front of him, and he was dead for three days. But on the third day, early Sunday morning, the power of God resurrected the innocent Lamb of God, and he raised from the dead and from the grave in power. And he arose not just to be a victorious, uh, the victorious Christ. He arose to give power to all those that he would redeem. 
And the same Jesus who would walk those streets and do all the things that he did, it says he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity, and by his stripes we are healed. And the same powerful Jesus, that same power of the Holy Spirit would now be available to every believer. The same power of Christ would be available to break people free from addiction, to break people free from from all kinds of bondages and pressures and forgive them from sin and rewrite the cultural DNA of families and totally transform people's lives. And I sat there in that moment, I realized what Christ had done for me. And I said, Lord, if you can hear me, I'm sorry. I turn from my ways. I turn to you. Even me, Lord, would you forgive me? And the Bible says this, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call. Why? Not because of how good they are, how perfect they are, or what they've done in the past, or whether or not they kept somebody else's scorecard. They had nothing to do with it. Christ saw in advance, and to this day, the escrow account is still full for anyone who would believe, for anyone who would trust, and say, Lord, you sacrificed and you died for me. To all who would believe that, to all who would receive that, he would give the right and the power to become children of God. This is the gospel. He died so that you could live. Say that with me. He died so that you could live. Substitution. So I don't know what brought you here today, but I know you didn't come here by accident. For some of you, this is great news, and you've heard it a thousand times, and you say, thank God. You walk out of here praising God. And some of you walk away today going, I never thought of it that way before. And you realize you'll never make yourself good enough for God. And some of you say, I needed to hear that. Where are you today? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? How far are you from God? You're not that far. He brought you here this morning to anyone who would say, Lord, I repent. I turn from my sin. I'm ready to do whatever you say. I'm ready to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sin. I'm ready to stand in front of people. You died on a cross publicly with all that shame. I'm ready to stand in front of you and in front of some people with no shame and say, Jesus Christ, I follow you. If you're willing to follow him and to do what he says and to put your whole life and trust him, salvation is yours today, not on yourself, but because of substitution. Can I pray for you this morning? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Heavenly Father, I pray right now that every person who hears this prayer would believe and trust in you. Say this prayer in your heart. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner. I believe that you died for me. And I'm ready to follow you no matter what. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. My substitute. That I may live. Say, yes, God, that's me. Father, fill each person with the incredible witness of your spirit right now. And change their life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I love you. Keep coming back. Thank you, Pastor. In just a moment, our service will conclude, and we want to pray for you. It's how we close every service here at Heartland.